Hi, welcome to Inclusion at Work. I'm your host, Larry Rothstein. Today's guests are Dan Berlin, co-founder of Team C Possibilities, a businessman, a former executive at a number of multinational corporations, a founder of Rodell, a vanilla extract company, a marathoner and a triathlete who ran across the Grand Canyon and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. And with him is Charles R. Scott, who is an executive mentor, also a co-founder of Team C Possibilities, a former executive at Intel, an adventurer, an author of two books, and a collaborator with Dan on some of his exploits. So welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. Tell me how you met each other. Charles, you want to kick it off or I can? Um, you go. I'll go for it. Yeah, so Charles and I have children about the same age, and we were living in um, just above New York City well, about 20 years ago, and our kids were in the same um, preschool together. They were in the same kind of daycare preschool together, and we met as mutual parents. And at that time, were you both working in uh, corporations in New York? Yeah. Speak for me, Dan. Yes. I was working for in a corporate role um, in New York City and I believe Charles was as well. So we we're both busy parents. And what I remember, this was before I really started taking on athletic endeavors and just being impressed that Charles's pursuit of a high level career and taking on Ironman races around the world while raising young children. So I remember just being incredibly impressed that with this guy who seemed to be uh, doing everything. And, um, you know, we just had a good time being together. Dan, can you tell me a little bit about your developing blindness that occurred, I think, when you were diagnosed originally when you were seven and, and how you began to deal with it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was a seven-year-old second grader who really just you know, couldn't see the board very well and uh, struggling playing uh, peewee league baseball and things like that. So it was uh, taken into an uh, you know, ophthalmologist to see what was going on. And things didn't look right back in the retina. I had some spots and some other things, which later on were diagnosed as Stargardt's disease and eventually uh, re-diagnosed with um, genetic testing to something called cone rod dystrophy. But the symptoms are the same. It's similar to a macular degeneration where over the next 20 years, I slowly lost all of my central vision. And um, at a slower level, with losing some of my um, peripheral vision. And you were very young. Could you absorb the diagnosis or did you understand what it would impose upon your life over the next few years? <laughs> Not at all. You know, as a seven-year-old, I mean, I was told, I remember being told by the, this great doctor who I had you know, back then, he just said, you know, by the time you're in your 20s, you're going to be blind. And that, that's all I remember of the conversation. But I mean, shoot, even being a, a seven-year-old, you, you can't even imagine being 20 years old, much less what that would be like. So I, I kind of just shoved it away. I, I think I just hit it. I didn't honestly think too much of it. I, I came to the realization that I wasn't seeing things the way other people were seeing things, of course, but I didn't want to be different. And I just kept doing things, whatever I felt like doing or pursued the interests I had at the time, uh, just as everybody else would do it. As it developed, though, that became more challenging because I, I did develop these negative habits of, of hiding it or not taking on activities that would... Um, bring out something where I had to, you know, see the ball. So for instance, I played you know, a lot of sports in high school and I would play football. And I, originally I was, um, you know, 
touching the ball, handling the ball, you know, that type of thing. And I slowly moved to positions where all I had to do was um, the job right in front of me. So like a lineman or a defensive end where I just had to more so follow the motion than actually see the ball every time. So those started to become things that I was adapting to through my teenage years, which maybe weren't the healthiest way of dealing with it, but it's just the way I ended up going. And, you know, one thing I'll add, when, when I first met Dan, because his daughter and my son were best friends at age one, you know, right? And as often happens when the little kids are friends, the parents became friends. Dan was driving a car uh, and he didn't tell me that he had any issues with his eyesight. So for the first, you know, for, I don't know how long, but it was quite a long time. I had no idea that he had any issues with his eyesight. He hid it for me and for most other people, I think. Um, so it took a while to, to realize uh, what was going on. I just thought I was a really bad driver. Yeah, right. It is true. He, we, we, were, we were going somewhere together. I was following him and he hit, hit, he hit the curb and it knocked the hubcap off of one of his wheels. And I pulled over and got it. And when we arrived, I threw the hubcap at him. I said, nice driving, idiot. I had no idea he had any problem. I just was like, dude, pay attention to the road. Yeah, so. How did you manage to get a driver's license? Well, my vision loss was slow and progressive. So when I was 16 years old, I had enough vision left to pass the test, the 2050 or 2060 or whatever the, the visual acuity was at the time. So I was able to have a license and um, was able to figure out a way to keep it up through my um, early, mid, even late 20s. You know, um, I would use certain types of glasses to drive. I would slowly um, only drive at certain times of the day when the lighting was right. And then um, that was one of the hardest things to do was at one point then I really had to say, okay, I, I, I'm, it's not safe for me driving. And that really came after I had kids and said, you know what, I'm not safe for me or for other people out there. And even though I probably could have stretched it another year or two by trying to get, um, get through the vision test, I decided it was time to uh, not drive anymore. And that to me was, a, that was a huge um, change that's giving up so much freedom but um but i did have that experience when i was younger of driving and being able to uh get around on my own did you hide this condition while you were at work or from your fellow and <laughs> all the time yeah i was you know it was you know, pretty competitive and uh, work was important to me and i always had the sense of needing to prove myself probably because i couldn't see as well as other people could and that extended through graduate school and, and into my into my jobs, into my work. Um, I was always concerned about being being judged or being pigeonholed or, or stopped with my advancement if I let other people know that I couldn't see, you know. And, and in fact, I had people tell me when I finally did leave um, this company that I had a great time with. I spent ten years, you know, working all over the world. Um, uh, with some great folks. And when I left, I remember my boss telling me, you know, why are you leaving? I flew on the floor that he was, he was, he was based down there at the time. And um, he's like, why are you leaving? You know, we can never fire you. And I was like, well, when I thought about it later, I'm like, that's exactly why I'm leaving. Because if I'm in a position where I feel my only value of being here is because, you know, I'm too much of a liability to let go, you know, that, that's not the type of position or life I want to have or feeling I want to have at work. And um, I had left, I was 36 and left to uh, co-found the company out in Colorado. Is that the vanilla extract company? That is, that is. 
Um, well, you have to explain to me about vanilla extract. <laughs> Why did That's you... a long discussion, yeah. <laughs> well, what, I can see leaving a company to start your own company, but why that particular kind of company? And uh, it sounds like a delightful kind of company to have. But. Oh, it was, it was. And my background was mostly in the food industry, flavors and fragrances. Oh. So I was at the time the, the global product manager for this uh, uh, large company I was working for managing vanilla and some other products. So I, I knew it well, I, I was very familiar, I traveled to Madagascar and Uganda. And, you know, Indonesia and had the experience both on the ground and then making and managing the product. So I knew that very well. And um, when I came to Colorado, I, I just had an opportunity to join two other partners and um, um, originally buying out a spice blending company and eventually um, turning it into what became Rodell, the vanilla extract focused company. And starting a company, was that in part the sense that with your declining eyesight that you could now control your own fate as opposed to working for other people? It's interesting. I don't know if I would have looked at it that way at the time. I do know that I had always had the intention of um, starting my own, running my own company. I was always very entrepreneurial when I was young, even working in a large corporation when I look back at it now, like I started two product lines just on my own and then integrated them into the company. You know, I developed a production process in a different divisions factory, you know, just things like that. I was always very interested in creating new products and the entrepreneurship process was always something that I really enjoyed. So when I had the opportunity, it was fantastic. Now, by this point, I was legally blind, you know, not driving at all, two young children, my wife gave up her job, you know, moving my kids when they were just starting school or in their early elementary school years. I mean, it was a tough, I took on a lot of responsibility because, you know, we went from a two income household to a one income household based on me, a blind guy who couldn't see, you know, starting his own company with a couple of partners. So I, I think I just piled the pressure on at that point, but I, I didn't really think of it that way at the time. It was just, you know, the, the direction I went. Were your partners concerned at all about the blindness? My partners are fantastic. You know, of course, I was very open and transparent with them about everything that was going on. I mean, they, they knew I couldn't drive you know, at that point, for instance. And I was using a cane to get around, for instance. Um, and they were fantastic. And it really helped me understand that um, success in life at least for me, comes in the form of playing on a very good team. And what that means is we don't all have to be great at everything. So my other partners had, had very good skill sets, you know, whether it be in operations or sales and marketing. And I had very good skill sets, you know, albeit in like research and finance and areas like that. So together, we made a very highly functioning team even though I wasn't going to be the one, you know, leading the sales effort as a blind person, it would have been more challenging for me to be designing labels and presenting pitches to customers. Um, however, on the back end, when it came to developing the products, you know, where they were sourced, what they tasted like, and um, how, how, we, how we managed our, our finances and scaled, and eventually operations, you know, that's what I did very well. So it's just about finding, you know, where our strengths are. 
and then mitigating our weaknesses. You know, so my weakness not seeing, I wasn't going to be the one designing the labels, but I had strengths in other areas. So pairing up with the right teammates, you know, allowed us to become a very highly, highly successful and, um, and, and motivated and enjoyable team. Well, one of the assumptions of No Limits Media is that people with disabilities have abilities and value and that it really comes out in collaboration with other people in the world of work. And one of the things I think that's inhibited the hiring of people with disabilities down through the decades is that people on the other side don't see the abilities and they don't often know how to collaborate with people with disabilities. But once they do, they actually find a lot of creativity and innovation and insights that they might not have had and that they can be really effective together. And it's the together part that you're talking about that is so important for this series of podcasts for people to get that possibility. When Charles really exemplified that and the stuff that you do together. So maybe I can bring Charles in. From your position as an executive mentor, what you're hearing from Dan might be very valuable in terms of what work you do. The adventures that I've done with Dan and the time we've spent together have had a profoundly positive impact on me. So I do offer my services in the sense that I'm a guide on a lot of these crazy endurance challenges, but I'm getting, you know, as much or more in return. Um, there's an exchange going on here too, from just the, the different perspective. And so I was nodding vigorously as you were talking about the experience of having someone with a disability in a workplace and the colleagues were starting to recognize um, that there's some real value, uh, sometimes in just a different perspective um, and seeing things from a creative point of view. I mean, I, I see work and play as overlapping and the, the, the bridge between work and play is creativity. And I think people who are successful in work are very creative people. And if you can experience life and perceive things from, from a variety of points of view, it helps with your creativity. So just exposing yourself to a whole range of differences is in and of itself has intrinsic value too. What Dan and I have done together in co-founding Team C Possibilities and taking on these endurance challenges, it's very much a team effort to Dan's earlier point. You know, you, you find your areas of strength and you try to mitigate your weaknesses. And we all know that about ourselves. Dan, Dan knows what happens to me when I get exhausted or under duress. I start lecturing in a condescending way. <laughs> it's, oh, really? it's one of my flaws. Yes, I have, I have a handful of a number of flaws. And whenever I get in my lecture in a condescending way mode, Dan says, hey, Charles, words need to stop coming out of your mouth. <laughs> so he's also helping you as a human being, let's just put it that way. <laughs> I've learned so much from Charles along the way, too. I mean, as we go on some of these adventures and, you know, Charles sharing stories about high-level management at Intel and other places around the world and just how teams function. And it, it's been fascinating for me to learn that. I've always had this kind of uh, preconceived notion, but to actually, you know, have the opportunity to really talk about it when we're out on the trail for 18 hours together. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. I've learned so much through this interaction along the way too. How did you two decide to found this nonprofit and did your adventures at the Grand Canyon start after the founding of the nonprofit or before? Shall I tell the story, Dan? <laughs> yes, please go for it. Okay. Yeah. So Dan moved to Colorado and started the business, but we were, you know, friends and stayed in touch. But he called me up one day and said, I've decided I want to run the New York City Marathon, uh, but I need a guide. Would you be my guide in the New York City Marathon? 
And in that conversation, I, I think I asked like, what's the longest you've run before? You, you were, you were, I really, just started. <laughs> yeah. He's like, like three miles or something, something ridiculous. And I'm like, Oh, I see. So it's, you wait until after you go blind and then you become a marathoner. This is the story here. So I agreed, but I'll say this when he asked me to guide him, I've run many marathons my whole life, but when he asked me to guide him, my first reaction was self-doubt. And I said, I've, I've run marathons since I was 13 years old. But every single race I've ever done has been about me and my ego and bragging about how fast I can run them. I've, I've never guided a blind person. I'm probably going to screw it up. And he said, no, you won't. It's easy. You hold a tether. And if there's a pothole coming up, you'll say, there's a pothole coming up. Move to the right. You'll talk the whole time. You're good at talking, Charles. You'll do fine. <laughs> I was like, I think there's an insult in there, but I'm going to ignore it. No, but, but so yeah, he, it was Dan's idea to run the New York City Marathon. We ran that marathon. Then the next year we did the Colorado Marathon. Then we did a half Ironman. It's where you swim 1.2 miles, you ride a, a bike 56 miles, and you run 13.1 miles. And by that race, it became really clear to me, oh, Dan's getting in great shape. And that's when we started to get ambitious. And that's where we came up with the idea to run rim to rim to rim across the Grand Canyon. So you start at the South Rim, run all the way across the North Rim and come back rim to rim to rim. And it's not a race. You're not allowed to race in the Grand Canyon. It's just a route ultra runners do for bragging rights. I, I had done it a couple of times before purely for bragging rights. And I asked Dan, Hey, you want to try this man? And he said, sure. And then the press descended. And when the press descended, we just issued a press release and all of a sudden we were, you know, he was in CBS evening news, we we're in Fox news and outside magazine. And that's when we realized, Oh, there's a lot more to this than just let's do some cool endurance challenges together. And that's where the idea for team C possibilities came from. And then we kept doing, you know, we did more marathons like the Boston marathon, but we started taking on endurance challenges around the world never before done by a person who's blind and then would speak with local schools and do press releases and then develop the scholarship program uh, to support college students with vision impairment. So we built a whole program around it, but it emerged kind of organically from Dan just becoming a remarkable endurance athlete willing to take on challenges that intimidate the healthiest of humans. Well, just describe that rim to rim experience. I mean, what does that involve? I mean, I can't even imagine what you're talking about. It's like, what? You want to, say, you want to tell them, Dan? <laughs> yeah, it's um, it, it, there's a couple of trails that, that transverse the Grand Canyon, you know, from the south to the north and back. And it's, uh, I, I would say you basically um, run downhill for about oh, 10, 13 miles to the, to the base of the canyon. It drops around 4,000, 5,000 feet in elevation decline. So it's like starting to climb a mountain by going down. And then uh, running across the basin and then up the North Rim. And then we get to the North Rim. It's, um, it's remarkable because the bottom's hot. You know, it's 80, 90 degrees. And, uh, you know, there could be snow on the North Rim when you get up there. Eat a little bit. Recheck our packs and turned around and um, went back down and ran back across the other way. I want to say it's three miles each way. Yeah, 46 yes. miles round trip. Yeah. Um, something like that. So uh, just incredible. And being blind doing it was really cool because there's so many ecological zones or weather zones we go through on the run. So you go from Sandy to Rocky, there's pine forest, there's a, you know, desert like it's, um, there's of course the river at the bottom. So you're going through all these different environments and each one has its own feel, its own sense, its own smell. It's just really a fantastic experience. And, uh, and to be out there with friends doing it. I mean, this is stuff that we love doing. And we found a way to turn it into something that brings meaning to us as well. So Team C Possibilities was really just merging something that we love doing 
you know, being out in nature, doing these really hard endurance challenges that we're not, we, we, we don't know going into these things, whether or not we could finish them. You know, these aren't things like I've, you know, trained for a marathon. I know I can run a marathon. We're going to go do it. These are things that, okay, this is hard. We're going to go put it out there and see if we can finish. Um, so we combine that love with actually turning it around and using it for both fundraising and for um, empowerment of students and uh, young people who are vision impaired or blind and um, being role models and creating role models out there in the community. Charles, do you describe what's going on in the Grand Canyon? It is a sunset. Do you describe that so that Dan can feel it or see it in a way since he was sighted for a long time? Yes, absolutely. And so sometimes I'll ask, uh, you want me to describe the setting, but, um, uh, and Dan will let me know if he wants to hear about it. But no, as a, as a general rule, yeah, as the guide, that's part of it is to describe what you're seeing. And sometimes there'll be moments and the Grand Canyon is a wonderful place where, you, you know, the sun would be going down. And I, I would try to come up with the most descriptive language that I could. So you might say, oh, there's an ochre hue Huh. on the spires that are surrounding us and the massive blocks of stone towering over us. I, I try to speak that way to be as descriptive as possible. But at the same time, you're freaking tired. You've been going for eight hours. You know? And so your brain is not working totally well. This is the way to slow you down as a conversation. Oh, I know. So it's sometimes really hard because I'm just I'm just trying to like not faint. And then I'm like, oh yeah, shit, I got to have to come up with literature over here. That's <laughs> the way it felt. But no, of course I would describe it. And then what's lovely too is then Dan, often he would respond with his experience. When we did the Inca Trail, and the Inca Trail is a four-day trek over three mountain passes that are nearly 14,000 feet high, and it ends in Machu Picchu, this ancient Incan ruin in Peru. And we decided we wanted to do it as an endurance challenge and, and attempt to complete it in one day. We asked the local authorities for permission, because you need permits, to try it in one day. And they said, well, you got a problem here because it's takes four days for a reason. Those three mountain passes are really rugged and nearly 14,000 feet. So you have to deal with altitude sickness and it's hard to go fast. And not only that, no one's allowed on the ruins of Machu Picchu after sunset. So you got to arrive before the sun goes down. They said, there's no way a blind person can do this in one day. And I said, you have not met Dan Berlin. Just let us try. And we completed it in 13 hours. We arrived at the overlook of Machu Picchu after the last tourist bus had just left. It was like we were discovering it. So the ruins of Machu Picchu were laid before us empty and a, a blue mist had settled over the ruins. And I started to try to describe it for Dan. And I was like, man, I really, I wish you could see this. And he said, oh, I can feel it. Yeah. And this back and forth of what is your experience of it? And then I would tell him my experience of it. And I'm so focused on sight I miss certain things. You miss the smells. You miss the sound. Like there's a di different sounds depending on the, the, the leaves and the trees, fall versus spring, for example. I mean, all kinds of subtleties that you just miss when the primary input is your sight. And Dan offers that over and over again in exchange. So this is more of an exchange than me just talking to him. Yeah, there's a depth of it, the experience that you wouldn't get if it was just with another sighted person because you'd both be focused on that sense. And that goes back to what does a workplace get out of these more profound collaborations around something. I want to ask you about Mount Kilimanjaro because Chris Waddell, who's the co-host of Inclusion at Work on Bloomberg Television, went up Mount Kilimanjaro and he's paralyzed and was in a wheelchair. And I've seen his documentary where he's being pulled <laughs> because it was pushed, but at certain points of it, 
there's these long ropes and they're just pulling them up there. So how did you guys do it? And again, the point I want to make here is you guys have to go to an extra sense of planning and design to get these things done, which I've heard from a lot of people with disabilities that we can do it, but in order for us to do it, we have to do this. And that becomes a skill that other people don't have. I mean, we're really organized. Otherwise, we can't do it. It's impossible. How did this come about? It's just like being at work, honestly, in that background sense of planning. There's a lot of extra work that goes in ahead of time. And we were actually thrown off. So 10 days before we were doing a speed ascent to Mount Kilimanjaro, we had the full intention of uh, being the first blind athlete to ascend the entire mountain in one day. And a couple of days before, like 10 days out, we were notified by our, our um, guides that they couldn't do it because of um, ascending too far over the guides. There was liability for them ascending so much altitude in one day that we had to break it up into two or three days. So we ended up doing it that way. But all along the way, um, the terrain varies and we vary our guiding techniques. So this is one thing that's really difficult um, you know, for Charles in this process too. It's not as if there's one way to do it. And this is so true with work too. There's not like there's one way that works. There's one way that works for each person in each environment at each moment. You know, a smooth dirt path is very easy to guide with a, with a, a, a tether. Um, a rocky path, maybe it's a, um, maybe it's a hiking pole as a rigid tether. Um, a steep rocky descent might be me holding on to um, Charles's pack on the way down. And going up might be completely different and might be all verbal with Charles tapping rocks with a hiking pole and, and saying mm -hmm. right, left, and how high, you know, eight inch step up, 12 inch step up, you know, move to your left. So all the conditions change and guiding changes. You know, so it's, a, it's an ever evolving process on these, um, on these adventures. And, and we just really don't know. We don't know until we jump into it and get there. And we, we've had to figure a lot of this stuff out on the fly, you know, mutually as a team. You know, we figure out what's the best way to, to get across this river or what's the best way to tackle this trail. When you did Mount Kilimanjaro, what was that like? Close to what you thought it was going to be like? Or was it just incredibly difficult physically or emotionally, mentally? <laughs> All these things are All incredibly difficult things. physically. Yeah, yeah, Kilimanjaro was great. I mean, and we had the, alt the altitude as well at the top. I would say the guiding on this one, uh, we worked really well together as a team. So that, that was great. The trails were uh, decent trails, well-traveled. So that was great. When we got to the higher point, basically you, you arrive, you start off the summit at midnight or 1 a.m. It's freezing cold, which adds another a layer of difficulty because I sense the ground often through my feet or my hands, or you know, if I'm going up steep rocks, I'll use my hands as well. And wearing gloves and heavy boots, things like that, because it's, you know, minus 20 degrees or whatever with the wind chill, it, it dulls my senses even more to the, to the ground. And that just makes guiding even more challenging. And then the wind makes it hard to hear. So it, it definitely was a challenge um, on the last, you know, call it 2,000 feet, 3,000 feet of climbing to get up there. But like everything, we just got together and figured it out. There are several different routes um, up to the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro, and we took the Rongai route, which is usually a six-day trek, but we did it in about two and a half days, mostly at night, which was quite the experience as well. And one thing that Dan and I took away from that, that climb, the guides that we were with 
there's the Swahili phrase, pole pole. And that means slowly, slowly. And so the way you get up Mount Kilimanjaro is pole pole. So you just gonna be really careful about pushing too hard too quickly or you'll break. And so we were kind of right at that edge. We were doing a speed ascent. We did about a third of the time typical for that route, but we were pole pole. You kind of just, when you start to feel like you're pushing too hard, we back off. After Achilles, when Dan and I do endurance challenges, we regularly look at each other and say, pole pole, <laughs> like, you know, stay within yourself. <laughs> okay, careful, careful like that. And it's a, that was a really good lesson from, from that climb. What did it feel like when you reached the top? <laughs> Amazing. Uh, yeah, although I guess the altitude is 21,000 feet. So you're feeling really, you feel the altitude too. So you feel sick at the same time that you feel exhilarated. So I was utterly exhausted, but also very, very excited that we did it. Because you never know, as Dan said, if you're going to complete it. And so you feel a sense of elation that you accomplished it. But by the way, one of the dangers of mountain climbing is you getting to the summit is not the entire thing. <laughs> you got to get back down. And right. if you, you all on the mountain just to get to the top, you're in real trouble. So the descent was really, I have to say, pretty miserable and, and exhausting and you're just done. So um, so that was the high point, I guess, was making to the top, but then realizing, oh man, we got to get off this thing. <laughs> yeah. And as a blind athlete, I'll tell you, um, going down a trail, going down, descending is much harder than going up. Yeah, yeah, if you think about it, I mean, you never really worry about falling up the steps. Right. If you can't yeah. see in the middle of the night and you're, and you're rushing to get out of your house, you worry much more about falling down the steps. And that's the thing that as a blind athlete, yeah, we face. That just makes this thing, you, you hit this exhilaration of we've done it. And now we got to start. It, it's just this, um, yeah, it, it's tough. It, it grinds at you. Charles, you give a talk called What Do You Want to Be When You Grow Up? Is this what you thought you'd be doing when you grew up? <laughs> when I was a child, I had no idea I would be doing this at all. No, until Dan asked me to guide him in the New York City Marathon, it had never entered my mind to even think about guiding disabled athletes. And there's a wonderful organization called Achilles International that I, that I found about through Dan um, that has chapters all over the world that pair able-bodied athletes with disabled athletes. That was one thing, but no, as a young person, I had no idea I would be doing this, but I will say this workshop, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's focusing that question on adults. You know, young people often answer it with, you know, single titles or professions. And the point I make in that workshop is the answer to this question is the work of a lifetime. It's up to each one of us to craft a meaningful life in an intentional way. And so what I'm trying to do right now is exactly that. What's the biggest positive impact that I can have in this world that's aligned with who I am and who I want to be in this world? And Dan was making the point earlier about you, know, you play to your strengths and you mitigate your weaknesses. And I think part of the joy of entering midlife is for a lot of people, that's when that work becomes really important of being very clear about who are you and who do you want to be in this world? We often start our professional you know, careers trying to be what we think we're supposed to be. And working with Dan has really given me permission to just allow the crazy athlete in me to be celebrated, to allow the writer in me and the speaker in me to come out and celebrate his story. I include his story every workshop that I do because I think it's a beautiful metaphor. And it's really not about disability. It's about perceptions. We all disable ourselves with our perceived limits, right? right? And if this blind guy can climb Mount Kilimanjaro in two and a half days or run across the Grand Canyon and back nonstop, you know, what's holding you back is really the message. So this perception of what does disability even mean as a word, 
is a really interesting discussion to have. And I think a lot of times to your earlier point about workplaces, not knowing what to do with someone who has some disability that's outside of the norm, it, that you're, you are limiting yourself when you don't look with creativity on the many, many ways human beings solve problems and the many, many ways human beings interact with one another. And if you spend time with someone who has different perceptions or, or different experiences than you do, you grow. And I, I love that opportunity. I feel that is a kind of honor and I wish more people would have it. Well, Dan, how do you answer the question, what do you want to do when you grow up? <laughs> <laughs> I'd say I'm doing it. I had the joy to be able to craft a career that I loved and, and still love, still very active in this. Through the Vanilla Company and the, and the process, we had started companies in Madagascar and joint ventures in Uganda and all throughout there. And um, I, I still do that. I'm, I'm heading to Senegal in three weeks to work on an accelerator program for uh, African tech startups. You know, it's we just find these ways to do stuff that we love to do. I say I discovered that through athletics and I love the way Charles put it, you know, allowing that, that inner athlete to just come out and be celebrated. And, um, that's it. We just find things that we inherently just get joy out of and then figure out how to craft a life around, um, bringing joy to ourselves and to others. And, um, that's why I feel very fortunate, um, to have had that opportunity and to have this opportunity to do it, you know, surrounded by great people. You know, there's just some really, you know, basic rules. We, we run a scholarship program. We have 18 blind college students that we mentor. And, uh, you know, there's certain principles we, we talk with them all the time about, you know, surround yourself with people that want the best for you and want, and you want the best for them. You know, just simple things about forming our own communities that can really help us figure this out. Um, none of it's easy, but that's the challenge that's fun to overcome. What are those principles? Everyone's individual. What works for somebody? What, what feeds somebody's soul um, may be completely different than what brings someone else joy. And, um, you know, there's some basic things about, you know, surround yourself with people that, that, you know, want the best for you. You know, be around people you want to be around. You know, those influences. I have teenage children. And I love that saying about show me your friends and I'll tell you your future. It, it, it's so true, you know. Um, we also talk about like maximizing your strengths and, um, you know, learn how to minimize your weaknesses, you know, whether that's pre-planning, you know, as you mentioned, you know, very clearly, Larry, that, that idea of planning ahead is essential when we're coming at it from a disability perspective too. And that can be really powerful. We also look at things like, you know, it's very hard to be the best at the world at any one thing, but very few of us just have one skill. Many, many of us have many skills. So when we start saying like, okay, I'm good at this and I'm good at that and I like this, then we start looking at, okay, how can I combine those? You know, what, what career path maybe takes me through some multiple things that I love to do, you know, versus we don't always have to just choose one path and go. That's a big thing we look at, especially in college age. We find a lot of our students are directed towards choosing you know, a major, a career and what turns out, we have a great mentor that joins the program that says this very well, is that, you know, he was great at debate and, and uh, really good at math, found this beautiful marriage in corporate finance, you know, where, you know, he was better than everybody else at, at debating in, in that sphere and better than everybody else in math. 
came together in a really positive way that he became the best of the combined field. I think that's one of the principles we talk a lot with students about. You know, disability really is a social construct. It is based on history, based on perceptions of what the possibilities were in the Middle Ages or a hundred years ago. And we really do have the opportunity now to design a different world. Uh, and uh, the two of you are exemplars of what can happen when people join together to try to do something and do it with a sense of accomplishment and a sense of joy. And uh, the results are remarkable, but hopefully won't be so remarkable in a few years that there'll be many <laughs> collaborations between people who are able-bodied and have disabilities, so-called disabilities, and people find each other's strengths and then go ahead and do something remarkable, whether it's you know climbing a mountain or inventing a new product or servicing a customer in a, a way. There was a young gentleman who has a Down syndrome, who's a Sergeant Shriver Goodwill ambassador, who works for United Airlines and has this great personality. So he's a greeter at the airport. Who wouldn't want to be greeted by this guy? He'd feel so much yeah. better. So it's really just a question of, of course he can work. He's been doing podcasts for 10 years. I mean, I didn't even know what a podcast was 10 years ago, but he's been doing them. And so remarkable once you open the door, once the door is open and you go through it and the people on the other side of the door are actually happy you're going through the door instead of saying, oh, we have to build the ramp. We have to, oh my God, we have to do all these things and say, oh, let's bring him or her in and have a great time together and, and do something exceptional. I just want to add one thing to amplify sure. what Dan said, because I you, you just hit on it. And this is when I observe Dan and his interactions and the message um, that what he is countering and what I think this whole, his, the story and Team C Possibilities is countering is the low expectations that our culture has for people with quote unquote disabilities. And, and Dan is over here busting through over and over again, these perceptions. And then with the Team C Possibilities scholars, he's challenging them with the gift of high expectations of what is it that you're gonna do with your life? Not right. how can we take care of you, you poor disabled person. And that narrative, that changing that narrative, I think is the breakthrough point where we as a culture can, can decide that we're focusing on the ability, not the disability, as Dan would say. Uh, and that, that's a major um, power, I think, of, of what he's doing. Yeah, oh, totally important to try to cure diseases, but it led to this perception that you have to bring out a child in a wheelchair and then sing a song and then the tote board clicks and we've reached a million dollars and now let's keep it going, more crying. And unfortunately it's reinforced in the media and they don't focus on somebody who starts a business or, or unemployment rate or other issues like what part of the pandemic has really impacted people with disabilities It's hardly covered at all. So that's what No Limits is trying to do is just shift the narrative, keep showing more and more examples of people that are just doing it. And after a while you say, oh, I guess they can do things like that. I didn't know that. And it's not an overt prejudice. It's just it's just this unconscious prejudice built up from so many thousands of images that just showed, uh, you know, historically blind characters were always in jeopardy. There was this movie, Wait Until Dark with uh, mm -hmm. Audrey Hepburn. I mean, they're always, you know, oh my God, they're helpless and then somebody's got to kill them you know? or they're seers. Oh my, let's go to the blind. Uh, I think it was in uh, Game of Thrones. He was always go to the blind guy to find out what the next thing was going to happen. You know, so like, where does this come from? 
they're just people, <laughs> you know, and once you see them as just people, a lot of things happen. Again, you guys yeah. are doing a great job and keep doing it. And those young people that are trying to follow your examples will have rich lives. And, and that's what we should all have. Hard, I mean, for the young folks, um, too, coming up with this, we do a lot with this, the expectations that they have of themselves and what that's, you know, a lot of times learned behavior from when they were very young. That's hard. That's another barrier that needs to be broken through. And that's why what No Limits is doing, that's what we're, we're out to do, all makes a big difference. It's both outside society and it's also the individual themselves, you know, setting those expectations for themselves. And that can be very hard, you know, because oftentimes they're reinforced that that's going to be too hard for them to do. Yeah, I joke all the time. I love my dad and my parents, but my dad, every time I, I, I take on one of these adventures, he texts me and calls me like 15 times saying, don't overdo it. Be careful. You got to be careful. Are you sure you're okay? You know yeah. what you're doing. And he's just being a great parent. Um, but you know, for a kid with a disability, we also got to be very perceptive and, and careful around those narratives too, that, that you can do this. Um, you may do it in a different way and let's be smart about how you approach it. But by no means is this something you can't do. You know? yeah. and, and that's the message that I think needs to hit a lot of young people and those around a lot of young people early on. Yeah, no, no doubt. And that's why I'm hoping, uh, actually, uh, I went to the Harvard School of Education. I just approached them with the idea of taking these podcasts and getting them out to schools uh, for teachers and students and parents so that they are aware they can download this and give their kids hope and also to get the parents to relax. <laughs> it's like the one thing all parents with kids with disabilities worry is that what's going to happen when I'm not around. Well, if the society is far more open and people are getting jobs, then you won't have to worry. You know, they'll have a fulfilled life and you've done your you know, parenting up to 21 or 18 or whenever it's supposed to technically stop. And you don't have to worry well, what will happen. They'll be on welfare when they're 60 years old and that'll be their life. You know, I, I didn't do a good job. Well, uh, so I, my hope is that we can get these podcasts out to schools and educators and teachers and parents and other people and employers and that they'll start to shift their, the narrative. Thank you both greatly. And I look forward to you both coming to a Boston Marathon soon. <laughs> Thank you, Larry. <laughs> Thank Please. you, Larry. Yeah. yeah.